I love that living truth includes scratching a puppy on its belly. I think that's great. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but <laughs> anyway, it's good to be here with you. Um, welcome to the uh, 10 o'clock service. You guys all liking that, lo- that time change? Now, any, any of you who have young kids, you'll know that time changes are of the devil, aren't they? Because you can't tell a, a, a young child that, hey, sleep in an extra hour. We can all sleep in today. And even my, my seven-year-old, you know, I got up early so I can have some quiet time. You know, it's the only time of day there's no kids around. When you have, that's, why, that's why parents get up early, by the way. And so I got up and, and my six-year-old, of course, starts coming downstairs with me. I'm like, no, 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 you can sleep another hour. Because, Dad, I'm awake. I'm already ready to go. So... You know, time changes. Um, if you have young kids, we feel for you. We apologize. It's not our fault. There's a time change. But um, it's great to be here. It's uh, beginning in November. Uh, we just had uh, Halloween weekend, and um, you know, I, I was thinking of 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 this. Um, my kids, when they were young, I have three of them, and one of them, I remember, in a, when he was young and he had candy, and you know, they get the candy and. And if they don't sell it to their dentist, um, <laughs> they, they, have, they have their candy in their house, in their room or whatever. And, and our kids are usually good about, hey, can, we have, can I have another piece or can I have a piece of this or whatever. But um, one of ours, he, he had this, this skill in, um, of not telling us. Um, and and he, he'd think like, why would I tell you I, I, just in case you say no. So he would go in and, and get his own candy. And I know at one point I said, Hey, um, boy, and I won't tell you which one it is because it's not fair. So I'll just use the name boy, and, and I get their names mixed up all the time anyway. But um, so I said, hey, you've had enough candy, no more candy for today. And he's like, fine, okay. So I'm in the other room, and then he, I heard some shuffling, you know, and this is when he's really long, young, like two years old. And again, if you've ever had kids, we've all heard shuffling in the other room, right? You hear something going on, and you're just like, oh, Great. So I say, hey, boy, um, what are you doing in there? And go in the room, and, and seriously, he's like this. You know, there's something under his shirt, and it's sticking out about this much. He's like, nothing. <laughs> really? Did you, get some, did you get some extra candy? It's like, no. <laughs> You're not hiding anything? Uh-uh, not hiding anything. And I'm just having this conversation look at him, and looking at him. And I, I have to tell you, though, the confession, I am not a good parent because I'm really not. I'm really bad at teachable moments because I am like, I'm so entertained by my kids. <laughs> and I figure they're just like creating sermon illustrations anyway. So, you know, why ruin the moment? But so... He's sitting there, and it's obvious, okay, he's hiding something, and he's looking at me, and I was like, no, I don't have anything. I'm just, it's just me hanging out in my room. And, and I'm looking at that, and this is where, you know, as a parent, you probably, I don't know, I don't even know what you do. What do you do? You sit him down and say, is there anything you need to say, or, or whatever? And, and so I look at him, and I think, this kid's lying to me so well 
that I think, I'm just going to let him have it, the candy. Like, he's, he's doing awesome. He's holding, he's not cracking at all. And that's, I told you, I am not a good parent at these moments. And because I have to keep doing this, turning around going like, <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> just dying laughing at the fact that you're lying to me. And I know I should be totally appalled, but I wasn't. And I thought it was funny. So I just kind of like, oh, well, okay. And I, you know, I walk out of the room. And of course, then I say like, because if you eat the candy, you will turn into a frog and, you know, and walk away and just freak him out. But In that moment, you realize, and by the way, toddlers are for sure credible evidence of the doctrine that says we're all born with a sin nature, aren't they? <laughs> but I was thinking of that and looking at, and think, uh, at my son and thinking, as humans, we have incredible capacity for deceit, don't we? We just have this high potential to deceive. And to look each other in the eye, and if it's something you want, we're really good. We can be really good at deceiving. And we're in this series right now called Living, Live Truth. We spent the first couple of weeks really building the foundation and the basis of, of why we believe we can find a truth in scriptures and why it's truth we can build our lives on and how it actually benefits our lives today when we live out this truth and apply it. And then the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of looking at the, twi- uh, the turn that happens here, and it's in the book of 2 Peter. When Peter starts talking about, hey, there's deceit out there, and be careful that people don't deceive you because there's people rising up among you who will start telling you things that are not true about Jesus and about the faith. Last week, Dale spent a lot of time and really helped us understand Uh, how we watch out for this deceit. And it's not so much study every deception out there, but it's more like the more we understand what is truth, the more you can recognize what is not truth. But he kind of set the tone and showed how people would attack the character of God and even attack the idea of grace and attack the idea of Scripture and, and, and inject kind of deceit to those things and even deceit to this whole idea of of grace and how God gives you grace and and deceit and what discipleship looks like. Now this week what we're going to do is we're going to continue on in the book of 2 Peter and we're going to kind of look a little deeper at this particular heresy or the false teachings that were happening when Peter was writing and then really kind of bring it into how we can better understand the truth as opposed to the lie that they were learning and and, and hearing there. So I invite you right now, let's open up our Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2. And if you're unfamiliar with your Bible or kind of new to it, 2 Peter is a short letter kind of towards the very back of your Bible, near the end. If you find it, we're going to read these verses and then we'll kind of start to dive into it a little deeper. We're going to pick it up in verse 12, and this is kind of where we left off last week, where originally... Last week we talked about there was these deceivers and false teachers, and Peter continues the thought. So he says, but these, and he's talking about these false teachers, are like unreasoning animals. They're born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. They're reveling where they have no knowledge, and they will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, 
reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. This is a nice description so far, isn't it? They have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. They're accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray, having followed the ways of Balaam, the son of Beor, who lived in the wages of unrighteousness. And that was a kind of a false prophet in the, in the, the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. And Balaam received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of that prophet. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. And get this, in verse 19, they're promising freedom while they themselves are actually slaves of corruption for what a man is overcome by this he is enslaved we're going to stop right there and let's pray god i pray this morning that you'd help us understand what's happening here when peter's writing this letter to a church about two thousand years ago You'd help us understand his heart and why he's so concerned. God, I pray that as we understand the false teachings that they were falling into, that, Lord, that we could not fall into those same things. And that through this, we could see you more clearly and love you more. So we give you this time now. Amen. Imagine what it must have been like for Peter writing to this church. Take a moment after reading this and understanding this whole chapter, how he's writing and having really strong words about these false teachers. Imagine what Peter must have felt like. Peter, the one who was a fisherman as a trade, which meant that he didn't even make the grade. Growing up as a Hebrew kid and going through Hebrew school, no rabbi picked him up and said, I want you to learn from me. Culturally, he was one who essentially knew that, hey, I don't have what it takes to follow a rabbi, so I'm going to become a fisherman. And that's what he did. And then one day, this this really well-spoken, something unique about him person comes, and it's a teacher, a rabbi named Jesus, calls out to him and says, Peter, come follow me. Peter becomes his disciple, his student, his friend. Imagine what it would have been like for Peter to spend those years with his teacher, with his mentor, with his hero in life. Who he, Imagine what it would have been like to see this rabbi heal someone. The first time, what would it have been like when Jesus said to the person who couldn't walk and said, get up and walk? What would that have felt like to be there? What would it have been like when someone who is blind, who is born blind, who never has seen anything before, Encounter your teacher. And the teacher says, I make you. I now give you sight. You can see. And to see this person for the first time ever, seeing shapes and colors and experiencing life. What would that have been like to look at your teacher and say, are you kidding me? What would it have been like to be in a crowd, a crowded house, and you're with your teacher and hearing him teach and thinking, this guy's amazing. 
And then seeing someone tear open the roof and, and four guys lower their friend down on a mat because the guy can't walk. He's never been able to walk. And lower him in and thinking, what's my teacher going to do here? And the teacher looks down at him and says, hey, your sins are forgiven. What would you felt like when you saw that? Wait, you forgive sins too? And almost, oh, and by the way, go ahead and get up and walk. So you spend that time with that teacher. What would it have been like for Peter? What would it be like when the crowds just fall at his feet and said, could this be the Messiah? I think this is God with us. And to think, God with us has called me to follow him? Imagine how that must have been every single day walking with God. No one got to do that since Adam and Eve messed this whole thing up, but you get to. What was that like? What was it like when the religious people started turning on him and decided, no, we can't handle his teaching. He is really not leading people the way we want to. We're losing control from this guy. And what was it like when all of a sudden you started hearing rumors that your teacher's life was in danger? Oh, you said things like, hey, Jesus, if everyone betrays you, don't worry, I never will. And his teacher said, oh yeah, you're going to do it three times tonight. What did that feel like? Then what did it feel like later that night when on the third time you said, no, I swear I don't know this guy. And he looked you in the eyes. The one who told the guy with a crippled hand to reach it out, he'll be made well. The guy who fed thousands of people with just a little bit of food. The guy who came out walking on water and said, I believe you can be like me. You want to walk out here? Come on, Peter. That same guy is the one you said, no, I swear I don't know you. And he looked you in the eyes. What would that be like? What is it like for Peter to see that teacher crucified and suffering on a cross? Be laid in a grave. The only thing you knew to do was to go out fishing again and wonder, what was this all about? And then what was it like three days later when you saw him again? What was it like when he came to you and said, hey, remember when you denied me three times? I'm going to give you three chances right now to erase all of that. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? I do. Do you love me? I do love you. And to feel what it meant, what it must have been like to say, okay, lead my people, feed my sheep. You now are the shepherd, Peter. On you I will build my church. On your confession of who I am, Peter, I am appointing you to lead this thing. What would that have been like? So Peter passionately takes message to Jesus and preaches to thousands and sees thousands of people give their lives to Christ, sees thousands of people's lives radically changed to literally see culture being transformed and you were a part of it. And then there's churches popping up all over the world who rely on you and who come to you and say, what do you think about this? Because you were with Jesus. Imagine what it would have been like to hear the joy of the churches 
living out the ways of Jesus as they feed the poor and help the sick, as they offer love and forgiveness and grace to those they encounter. They love their enemies and bless those who curse them. What would that be like, the pride to think, oh, they get it, they're following Jesus. And then what would it be like when you start hearing that they're starting to believe different things? That there's teachers telling them that, oh yeah, Jesus, hey, he came, he gives you grace, but you know what? Jesus isn't isn't everything you thought he was. Actually, because of Jesus and and his forgiveness, he, he saves you for heaven, so now guess what? We can be just like everyone else in the Roman Empire. You can live any way you want. You can take advantage of people. You can live lives that are just filled with all kinds of sin. Because it doesn't matter. There's grace. Who cares about the way Jesus lived? He forgave you so you can live any way you want. And you're Peter, and this is your churches that you've raised, and now you hear them starting to participate in all kinds of things that have anything, everything to do, or nothing to do with Jesus and following his ways. The heartbreak you must have felt. In ministry, one of the great joys I have had is to always have people in my life that I get to build into. And one in particular who I spent tons and tons of time with, who didn't have any parents really in his life, who accepted Christ in high school and became uh, kind of one of my favorite students that I ever worked with. Spent tons of time with him. Brought him on mission trips. I remember sitting with him in a group of kids in Bosnia and we're in this circle of kids and we're trying to help these kids understand how much Jesus loves them. And I'm there with this kid who I got to see his life transformed. I remember that joy. And that same kid who I spent hours and hours and hours building into, hanging out with, doing ministry, seeing lives change through him, I remember the day when he said, you know what, I don't believe in God anymore. There's no way God is all this. I'm doing my own thing now. And to hear him out loud curse God and say, ah, I'm tired of it. I still like you, I like your family, but no, God, forget it. I kind of understand a little bit of how Peter must have felt to think, no, no, no. How can you experience this joy and and abundance that comes from Jesus Christ and living life for Him and then say, well, maybe, maybe I should do it some other way. Maybe Jesus isn't good enough for me. See, that's what's happening here and that's why Peter is so passionate in his writing. See, there was teachers that were creeping in among them and they believed in Jesus and they said, yeah, Jesus was, they, some would even say He was God, but He was Spirit. In his flesh, we're not sure about the whole God being man thing and and walking on earth. But one thing we know is that, hey, we believe in his grace. And we get a hint to what they were teaching here in in verse 19, but also, uh, just for your own sake, in the book of Jude, which is a couple letters later on, right before the book of Revelation, the writer of Jude, who's a brother of Jesus, is writing to a church about the very same problem. In fact, they use almost identical language. So we believe that they're borrowing from one another and they're teaching 
they're trying to correct the churches and say, no, be careful of these false teachers. And in Jude, verse 4, Jude writes and says, these are people who are turning the grace of God and making it into a license to sin and live any way they want. And what these teachers were teaching was, Jesus gives you grace, he forgives you for your sins, and because you are forgiven for your sins, it doesn't matter what you do in the physical world and life. It doesn't matter how you live. You can live any way you want. And and in the Roman world, if you ever study Roman history, which I know a lot of us like to curl up in bed with a book on Roman history, and, and if you ever read that, you'll understand That the lives they lived, they had these things called love feasts. And, and, and trust me, these are not godly places. Drunkenness and, and, and just sexual acts that you wouldn't believe were just par for the course. And these teachers are saying, hey, we can do this in our church too. It doesn't matter because of the grace of Jesus. It's cool. You can live that way. Fulfill whatever desire you have in the flesh because your spirit is saved. It doesn't matter. And yet these teachers forgot that Jesus lived with us to show us what life looked like. They forgot that living that way was incredibly selfish and actually took from people. It didn't give the way Jesus gave. Jude also writes in verse 12, he says, These people are hidden among you in your love feasts. They care only for themselves. Doesn't sound like Christ. So they were teaching about freedom and saying, You have the freedom to do anything you want because grace saves you. They were teaching that the freedom they have as a Christian doesn't come with a cost. That freedom didn't have a price. So the question for us is, if grace is a free gift from God, and it does not depend on our actions, as Scripture tells us, it's a gift of God, not of your works, Are we not free to act however we please? If God's grace gives us free, uh, it's a free gift, and he says, you're forgiven no matter what, then why do our actions matter is the question that applied to the people in Peter's churches and to our church today. What is our understanding of freedom as it relates to Scripture? So I have a few thoughts for us. What is Christian freedom? What is the freedom that God's grace gives to us? Remember, let's understand truth so we can recognize error. First thing is this. You are free. The freedom of God, of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, gives you the freedom to be who you are. Okay, Ryan, thanks. I love who I am as I'm someone who likes sin and I like to indulge in anything that comes my way. That's me. That's the freedom. No, let's understand a little more. Freedom to be who you are is it actually frees you and releases you to say, I don't have to live under the burden of trying to measure up to impress God. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, once you accept the forgiveness of Jesus, and that is yours, you no longer have to live under the burden of thinking, oh, every time I mess up or fail, God is going to strike me down. There's no condemnation. You stand before him forgiven. So what do I mean? So how does that make you free to be who you are? My guess is that some of us in here have sinned in our past. (laughs) 
my guess is some of us in here have sinned enough to where you kind of walk around with some scars. My guess is some of you come this morning and there's shame maybe because of what happened this weekend. Maybe because of something that's going through your mind right now. My guess is some of you come each week and you don't even feel worthy to walk through the doors of the church. And you think, oh, I know for sure God's probably in there. And you carry around this burden. And maybe you say, God, I, I've been wrestling with this my whole life. I don't feel free. And Jesus looks at you and, and says, I know your scars. I know your struggles. I know your evil thoughts. I know everything you've done. You can't hide that. And even with that, and I even know all the stupid things you're going to do. That's the one that blows my mind. (laughs) And yet, God looks at you and says, I still would die on the cross for you, even knowing what you're about to do. You can live free to say, I know that I am 100% accepted even with my wounds, even with my worries, even with my doubts, even with my messed up discipleship, even the times when I know I should forgive and I don't. And when I say free, I'm not saying free to do these things necessarily, to free to sin. We're going to get to that. But free to live knowing that you are a mixed bag of a lot of stuff. You are. I know you are. And if you're not, the person next to you, look at them right now, they are. So. <laughs> I recently was hanging out with, uh, uh, with a young adult and, and uh, we were talking about God's love and just saying, hey, do you understand? Um, do you understand how much God loves you? And it was interesting to hear him say, no, not really. And I said, well, what, what would it be like for you to know if God loves you? And he said, I don't know what it's like for anyone to love me. And I said, well, what do you think it would be like to know? How would you know if someone loved you? This is a really interesting conversation for me. And one, I'm glad that I, don't have, that I didn't have this experience to be in his place. I, I experienced love at a young age. But to have him look at me and say, well, uh, I don't know. I guess it would probably feel good. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. He said, I, I guess if I was loved, I would feel like I'm okay being who I am. And I said, do you think God's okay with you being who you are? And I think that's one of the things that's really hard for us to grasp. Brendan Manning says this. Actually, Brendan Manning, when he's speaking in in this quote I'll give you, he's talking from the perspective of God to you and to me. And he says this. This is God speaking, according to Brendan Manning, what he thinks. He says, I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet, every moment of sin and shame, of dishonesty and degraded love that darkens your past. I know of your shallow faith. I know of your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship. And my word to you is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be. Because 
none of us are as we should be. I love how that ends. The, free, one, the first freedom that we really get from Christ is being able to just trust that God accepts us as we are, not as we should be, because none of us are yet as we should be. You get that? I know some of you in here, you're struggling with things that you say, yeah, but you don't know about this that I'm struggling with. And God says, I do. Can you trust that I love you even in that? You are free to live outside of that. Don't carry that burden anymore. You say, oh, Ryan, but I, seriously, you don't know. Yeah, there might be some of you in here who even, you struggle with things that Christians aren't supposed to ever struggle with. Do you know there's very godly people who are wrestling in their lives are saying, I don't even know. I struggle with my own sexual identity. Does God love me? He can't possibly love me, but yes, he does. Ooh, it got quiet. Oh, none of us are as we should be. Just because your struggle might seem like it's better than someone or worse than someone else's, guess what? God doesn't like jerks either. A lot of us struggle with being a jerk. He doesn't ask you to stay there. He loves you. He loves jerks. <laughs> Praise God for that. <laughs> Brendan Manning goes on and talks about this is idea of being a ragamuffin. And he says a ragamuffin are, it, a ragamuffins are the unsung assembly of saved sinners who are aware of their own unworthiness. They know that they're only a beggar at the door of God's mercy. Do you know, according to the grace of Jesus, you're free to be messed up and to be in process. It's okay. You're in process. I'm in process. That's okay. You can freely worship when you think about the grace of Jesus because he looks at you and says, oh yeah, yeah, that wicked thought you just had, uh, yeah, I still love you. I love you. I know that. I know you think that. Idiot. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> so we're free to be who we are. Be, trust that God loves you as you are. Now here's where we're going to get a little more difficult because I think a lot of us can get there, right? Okay, I can accept that. What else are we free? We are free to be a disciple or a servant of Jesus Christ. The grace of God gives us a freedom to give him everything. Does that make sense? In Romans chapter 6, verse 15 through 18, I have this on the screen for you. It says this, What then? Shall we sin more because we are not under the law, but we are now under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? You're either a slave to sin, resulting in death, or obedience, resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you are now a slave to righteousness. Now you think, Ryan, slavery does not sound like freedom. I think you misunderstand your terms. Well, we are all slaves to something, Paul would say. And really the word there is really a servant. You can think of it that way. Paul calls himself a servant, a bondservant of Christ. Peter calls himself a bondservant. James calls himself a bondservant. They all understand that they're bondservants. They serve Christ. But the freedom that God gives us is this freedom to fully follow. 
be a full-on disciple of Jesus. To live without fear of someone saying like, hey, you know what? Um, you're not perfect. One of the things I used to struggle with all the time in Christianity is people would look at me and say, I don't want to believe in Christianity because of all the hypocrites. Have you, anyone ever heard that before? There's too many hypocrites that are Christians. And I used to like try to justify it and, and, and explain it until I realized, like, well, praise God, yeah, we are hypocrites. Isn't that the good news? That we are messed up and we try to live one way, but we fail and stumble, yet God keeps saying, come back to me. It's so cool that the church is filled with hypocrites because that means that everyone has a chance. <laughs> it's great. So when people say, oh yeah, you're a bunch of hypocrites, I go, I know. I read the scriptures too. <laughs> yeah, of course we are. I know I'm not perfected until I'm standing before my Savior. But because I have this freedom to fail, I can full on live in obedience. I can fall and say, God, I'm going to try to live for you and I might even mess it up sometimes. It might even cost me a little bit of reputation. One of my struggles, and this is not going to sound like someone who works at a church who should say this, but um, when I first became a Christian, I was one of those super passionate for Christ. And I was, you know, at my high school, I would tell people about Jesus and, and had a heart for people becoming Christians. And in college, no problem, I was at a very liberal school and in a teaching program with liberal arts. And so, you know, there's anything but a Christian environment. I had no problem with that. And, and um, as the years went on, though, in ministry, I started almost resenting when people asked me what I did for work. I hated, and I've told you this before, but I hated saying, oh, I'm a pastor. Because I felt like I kind of want to be like you guys. I want to be able to say, oh, I'm a successful business person. Or, oh, I, you know, I'm worth something. Because in the eyes of a lot of people I meet, being a pastor, a lot of them say like, oh, I know, but what do you do for work? And, and, um, <laughs> and but I would struggle with that sometimes thinking, I don't know, maybe I want to be, I want something cooler to be a disciple of Jesus. I would almost be embarrassed to say what I did. And I realized, was I embarrassed that I was a follower of Christ? Like I'd sit in Starbucks and have my Bible and I'd even sometimes want to hide it. Like I just don't want anyone to, you know, misunderstand anything. Or... And I think it's sometimes I was totally, something about it, I was not fully living for Christ because I don't know, I felt like maybe I wasn't, I didn't feel that full freedom I felt like, ah, what if these people don't accept me because I'm a pastor? They'd be okay if I was, you know, something different. And the coolest thing is, you know, that started changing after we moved back from Israel about six years ago and just had a different perspective on life. And I think in some ways God really redeemed that in my life here. Um, we have this group of friends uh, from our, our youngest son, and, and he's a, you know, runs in a posse. You know how, you know, elementary kids, they get, you know, a bunch of friends, and then they just, you know, they're just like, Trouble. I know they're going to be a lot of trouble. And, and none of the families are Christian families, but we, we're really growing to love these friends. They're great. And, and I can't hide what I do. They know I'm a pastor. And some of them are very even anti-faith. But the, one of the coolest things has been every single one of them has said, Ryan, why do you do what you do? What is it in your life that made you follow Jesus? And I'm think, sitting there thinking, why are you making this so easy? <laughs> 
I'm supposed to find like this spiritual moment to be like, oh, I want to tell you about Jesus. <laughs> and, and they're like, hey, tell me about Jesus. Why, do you, why did he change your life? I'm like, seriously, God? Really? <laughs> and now it's so cool. I'll show up. We were hanging out with them on Halloween, and they're like, oh, hey, our preacher friend. Hey, preacher, come here. And I have one of them who, this guy's crazy. He's crazy. He tells me stories from his life, and I'm just sitting there like, you what is wrong with you? Is that really how you live? And, he's, and, and I, I told him the other day, like, you are like giving me so many sermon illustrations, brother. <laughs> and, and he said, hey, let's have coffee once a week and I'll just talk and you'll have plenty of material. I'm like, <laughs> done, man. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> and they've embraced me kind of as, I don't know, like their pet preacher or whatever, but... <laughs> But I feel like in some ways God's saying, Ryan, do you know I want to use you and who you are and your personality? And there's a whole bunch of people that really don't care that you're a preacher, but they care about how much you love them. They don't really care what you do. They don't care how good, well you dress or how perfect you, you know, what car you drive or any of these things, which, trust me, we all think those things sometimes, don't we? Anyone drive an old car in Encinitas and you kind of think like, <laughs> at least Encinitas is actually cool to be funky. I'm talking, if you drive an old car in Carlsbad. Um, <laughs> we worry about those things. And Jesus is saying, Ryan, you're free. I, I'm freeing you to fully live for me. And you're going to stumble along the way. And you're going to make mistakes. But my, my grace is so much bigger. You can't, you're not God anyway. You've been set free. Quit being a slave to sin. Be a slave to righteousness, a right relationship with me, and just live. Take your bumps, your bruises, but keep going. I'm using you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was writing about the idea of grace, and he says, you know, sometimes with grace, if we just say, God, thank you for forgiving me, that's great, now I'll live any way I want. He goes, no, 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 that's cheap. You're cheapening what grace is. You're abusing it. He says grace is very costly. And I have this quote for you. It's actually in your outline and on the screen. But he says, we want to believe in costly grace. And he says this, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought after again and again. It's a gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. And then here's where the quote is. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. But it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns your sin, but it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our lives, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. It's Jesus coming down and saying, all right, they're so messed up, I got to go down there myself. You think that was cheap grace? And God, that truth frees me to say, I'm in. Oh man, if God is so radical and so wild and so crazy that he says, I'm going to go walk among you guys, wow, I want, I want in with that God. That frees me to forget about what the world is offering. 
So how do we respond to freedom, this true freedom? As I mentioned, we want to participate in the calling. Let's go to, uh, back to Jude, verses 20 through 24. And it says this. He says, you, beloved, after talking about false teachers, he says, build yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously, anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Have mercy on some who are doubting, Are you able to have mercy on those who are doubting? Like my friend, a former intern, who says, oh, forget God, I'm done with God. Can you look at him and say, even you, I'll have mercy. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. (laughs) Do you have a heart that looks at at those in your circle of influence and say, I just want desperately for you to know what I know? Are you willing to walk with them and love them the way Jesus did, giving them a chance to know the God of our universe? And have mercy on some with fear, even hating the garment polluted by the flesh. In other words, you're going to have mercy on some with fear because you say, I don't want to get sucked in. You're like my friend where I think sometimes, you are so nuts. What are you doing? But God says, oh yeah, I love that one. I love that one. He's mine. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory and blameless and with great joy. So what's our response? The response is, let's participate in the calling that God has given us. Let's be a church that doesn't like to just come together and hear some stories, sing some songs, be like, oh, Chargers are on pretty soon, let's go. Which is fine, you can still go watch Chargers. That's a totally godly thing. It It really is. It's good. God loves sports. But let's not just make life about just this. With your life groups, if you're journeying with a group, why don't you challenge one another and say, how can we be people who understand the freedom so much that we are sold out for the calling of Jesus? And it's going to look different from each one of us. Can we be a church like that? That a year from now we have my friend who's just nuts sitting there saying, hey, there's my preacher pet up there on the stage, but worshiping with us because God got a hold of his heart. What if in this room each of us had one of those sitting next to us a year from now? Because we said, we are free to live and to fail and to mess up. I'm going to invite the band to start making their way up. I'm going to tell you a quirky little story about the Irish sailors kind of back hundreds of years ago. These Irish sailors used to go off to sea and be fishermen. And they had this tradition where they had these wool, I guess, sweaters. I guess that's what you make with wool. Sweater jackets. And the, the women would sew these marks and images on the sweaters that would protect, they thought, protect my man as he goes out into the sea. These individual marks. And the other thought was this. If the marks don't protect them and they fall into the sea and get eaten by something, when that sweater washes up on the shore, we'll know whose it is because it's marked because fish don't eat wool. And (laughs) that was funny to me. Um, And I wonder sometimes, we go through life, and I think sometimes 
We have this mark. We have Jesus Christ who marks us. And you're going to go through life and you're going to get messed up and, and bruised. And some of us, our discipleship is going to have ups and downs. And, and sometimes I think that in heaven, some of us are just going to wash up on the shore and you're going to look and say, is anything in that person human at all? What is that? It is so messed up from life just took its toll on that person. And you wonder, is that even human? And I think Jesus is going to come and he's going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that one. Do you see the mark on him? That's one of mine. That's one of mine. Plus, look at the wool sweater. (laughs) That's how I know. But we're marked by Jesus. We're going to have imperfect discipleship, but we're free to keep moving on and letting Jesus lead us along the way. Let's not be a church that breaks Peter's heart because we start saying, oh, it doesn't matter the way we live. We don't need to participate in the calling of Jesus. Let's be a church that says we will live truth passionately, graciously with one another, with a love for our people that we walk with. And when we wash up on the shore, Jesus will say, oh yeah, those are mine. Let's pray. God, I thank you. For your grace. Thank you for the freedom that comes from it. Thank you that you love us. I pray now that you just speak to us in these last two songs, Lord. And even as we take an offering during one of these songs, God, let that just be an outpouring. We're free because of what you've given us. That even our stuff, Lord, we're able to hold loosely before you. That doesn't make us any better in anyone's eyes, Lord. So we are free to give, we're free to worship, free to be who we are, and we ask that you just change us and work in this place now as we respond to you.